0: Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. There's only a few people who I've been talking with on a regular basis for all 25 years of Worldview, and Jeffrey Winters is one of them. Jeffrey's a professor of political science at Northwestern. We've talked a lot over the years about Indonesia and also about oligarchy, which is a book that Jeffrey wrote and um, a thing that is happening all over the planet. Great to see you, Jeffrey. Great to see you again, Jerome. One thing I've learned is reminiscing with people is that sometimes people remember differently. Mm-hmm. But I remember the first time we talked as 1994 uh, when there was an APEC conference in Indonesia. And I thought I was going to have a conversation with somebody about, you know, APAC and collective uh, economics in Asia. And all we talked about was this corrupt Suharto guy. <laughs> you on WBEZ Chicago, 91.5 FM, Chicago's public radio station. And joining us now from Jakarta is Jeffrey Winters, Associate Professor of Political Economy at Northwestern University. And tell us a little bit about what the whole APEC summit amounted to, what this great free trade agreement that's going to come in 2020 or 2010, depending upon what nation you are, what does this all amount to for us?
1: Uh, Well, it remains now, as of the close today, still very much a lot of talk and a lot of vision um, and a lot of hope and good feelings. Uh, But I would say that um, there's not a great deal of substance to it so far. Let's take President Suharto. To be honest, to see President Suharto uh, standing there today giving the closing speech uh, on behalf of the APEC countries, I thought it was rather ludicrous. Um, This man's family has uh, conglomerates that spread out to the tune of tens of billions of dollars, and every strategic sector of the economy is controlled by him, his
0: family, and his close circle of friends. So it seems in a way like a total farce. It's a complete farce. That was my first memory of talking with you.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I recall that as well. And it was a Great opportunity to be able to um, switch the narrative a bit away from this grand conference and talk about a regime that it turns out was in its uh, last years. And although it appeared to people at the time that it was at its very strongest, we were seeing in 1994 rumblings of what ended up being a 32 year dictatorship coming to an end. And we talked about corruption. Um, and we talked about massive stealing going on um, in this country in Southeast Asia and the fact that the global partners um, were
0: completely complicit in that, and one of them was uh, the United States. Absolutely. Then by 1998, Suharto was out. Students rose up. Everybody rose up. And um, the New Order regime and the Golkar party, all Mm -hmm. all these great – Uh, Names they had there were were kicked out.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I have to say, you know, as somebody who works on and specializes on certain countries in the world and regions like Southeast Asia, and I've got a lot of colleagues in the the university community who focus on Africa, Latin America and elsewhere – Worldview is always a place where we could have an opportunity at some length to talk about what was going on in places around the world, put them in context, explain, um, really bring it to life for the audiences. So it was uh, for me, I don't know if you remember how many times I was actually in Southeast Asia or I was in Jakarta when the regime was falling Um, and we would do an interview, you know. Live, uh, middle of the night for me there, um, but in the afternoon here.
1: Tensions in Indonesia remain extremely high, and if anything, day by day they get higher. Um, we have not seen as much student activity, um, demonstrations that have been crippling Jakarta for months now. Uh, we haven't been seeing much of that during the last several weeks because the country is in the Muslim uh, solemn holiday of Ramadan, which is a time of fasting and introspection and so on and that 's going to last for about another week and a half or so. Um, but there have been sporadic outbreaks of of violence, anger, and so on in many other uh, parts of of the archipelago, sometimes involving hundreds of people, sometimes involving thousands and this this reflects Uh, a variety of things, depending on where it's happening. But in all places, it it reflects the fact that the social and especially economic breakdown of the country is continuing and deepening, and people are at their wit's end at this point.
2: And uh, it was cool uh, to be able to talk about those things and know that there are people uh, right here in Chicago listening um, and in real time uh, being brought up to date on what was happening.
0: And I think, you know, there's um, times when you think, well, why is a big corrupt regime in Asia mean anything to us? But it's become really quite relevant to all of us, uh, that the kind of uh, massive corruption that the Suharto regime was engaged in, and it was massive, and we mm-hmm. were, you know, the United States was involved, and 15 to $35 billion over 31 years of uh, yeah. the Suharto regime, And it was way, way more than other regimes. I mean, Mobutu in in Zaire, five billion. It's a remarkable thing. And the oligarchic structure that emerged in Indonesia is something that now we see all over the planet. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the values
2: of bringing a case like Indonesia to the fore and the fact that Suharto was arguably – the most corrupt person on the planet, and yet no one really knew about him, right? Um, because he kept a low profile. If you're going to steal, it's usually a good idea to keep a pretty low profile. Right. Well, he kept a pretty low profile um, until everything blew up. Um, and then you know there's a lot of hand-wringing that goes on. Oh my, you know, how did that happen? And what Americans need to know is that's business as usual, including the foreign policy of the United States. So those were some of the themes we were trying to bring out, which is be aware of the kinds of global relationships we have, the kinds of people we've been involved in propping up for all kinds of reasons and what the consequences of those things are down the road. And in in Indonesia's case, we're talking about a history that is very, very violent and has had tremendous – disruptive consequences for people in the region um, and for Indonesians themselves. And that complicates our profile there. But you're right. I would say in the 1990s, when we were talking about this, um, first of all, we would use words like oligarchs with regard to Russia. Um, We would use it with regard to um, places like Indonesia, but we never used it with regard to places like the United States. Um, I memorably had a grad student who said to me, me, um own, America doesn't have oligarchs. It has rich people. Um, so somehow we were in a different political space. But one of the things that's happened over this long sort of 25-year period of talking about places like Indonesia and Southeast Asia and the United States is the weird convergence uh, that has happened. Our democracy is in some ways almost as frail today as Indonesia's. And the role of wealth power is as prominent and as important in the United States today as it is in that incredibly corrupt place, and that convergence you know when I used to teach about this, it always used to be like Indonesia to the northwestern students, Indonesia, that very far away place you may visit someday, not a whole lot about its history or anything going on there that is really related to you and your lives here right um, today um, It's a very different kind of conversation in the classroom where uh, every time we talk about something in Indonesia, someone raises a hand and says, rather like what goes on in the (laughs) United States, right? Um, That's new.
0: One of the interesting things about looking at Indonesia is where the oligarchy from Suharto has gone. Um, Mm -hmm. His family was networked in. There were some big players. And those people did not lose their money the day Suharto left power. They – persist. And that's the funny thing about oligarchy is even when the top guy goes, the persistence thing. That's right. In fact uh, I ended up
2: writing a book that I published in 2011 called Oligarchy and had the book been what it was initially intended, it would have been Oligarchy in Indonesia. And what I was looking at was here's a regime which has just collapsed. A dictator falls cataclysmic and they made a transition to democracy. The military retreated and yet all of the people who had become tremendously enriched during the Suharto regime just continued right on. And in fact, the story became how they captured and dominated the new democracy rather than become a casualty of it. That is, there was no um, moment of going to jail, being on trial for the grand theft that had occurred. Instead, um, the money that they had amassed was money that they could use to um, influence and leverage the system to their benefit. And so that's where the kernel of the idea for understanding wealth power and its continuity, that's where it came from. But as I began to research it, I realized – wow, you know, our theoretical understanding of this isn't very good. Let me go back. And so that's when I began to research it all the way from ancient times forward. And then it was inescapable, but to include the United States as a comparative case. So instead of it being a book about oligarchy in Indonesia, Indonesia became a case in a book about oligarchy that ended up including the US. And this was written at a time when no one used the word oligarchs with regard to these powerful actors we have in the United States that
0: contend with the democratic power of the many. And the funny thing about this is it's so hard to get the oligarchy out of power. Yeah. Um, and we talked with Walter Scheidel uh, mm-hmm. who wrote a book about uh, the extreme things that – called the Great Leveler, the things mm-hmm. that get oligarchies out of power are pestilence, massive war and – Uh, You know, complete catastrophes.
3: One of the most effective ways of reducing the gap between the haves and the have-nots in history was the collapse of the state. And the reason for this is that the state in history, historically, for 98% of recorded history, wasn't just a way of organizing people's affairs. It was also an engine for disequalization, a vehicle uh, for making society and the economy less rather than more equal. And that's because the rich were either the same people as the powerful, or at the very least, they were very, very closely allied. And so the bigger, the more powerful, the more imperial pre-modern states became, the more they shored up, protected, reinforced economic inequality. And of course, the inverse is also true. When these state structures, these hierarchies unravel, they take the rich and powerful down with them. And that's what we observe time and again, going back to the fall of the Roman Empire, uh, even before that in, in early Egypt, Bronze Age, Greece. Uh, yeah, the fall of various Chinese uh, dynasties, which I talk about in my book, uh, the decline of the lowland Maya in Yucatan, the collapse of the Angkorian civilization in Cambodia. There are many, many examples from around the world that shows that the chaos of state collapse reduces inequality quite considerably. And it seems to be true even today if you look at Somalia. Somalia has a very bad press, understandably, for being anarchic and violent, and that's all true. But it appears that state collapse did in fact reduce inequality at the very top by taking down a highly kleptocratic regime. So we shouldn't
0: want an end to inequality,
3: essentially, because otherwise we get Somalia. Well, there have to be better ways of doing this.
2: Yeah, it's a great book because he asks a very important question. He says, under what circumstances do we actually see Equality rise and inequality go down, right? And and especially the role played, you know, where we have incredibly skewed um, wealth concentration as we have now on it's at, at unprecedented levels in the United States. And his answer was, ordinary politics actually works to the benefit of the ultra wealthy. Because they have all the leverage and the opportunities to be able to control lobbying, control the agenda, use their wealth power in all kinds of ways to shape the narrative, what we see on TV, what think tanks produce and so on. And the only moments in which we really get leveling are these cataclysmic moments that he points to, pestilence, uh, massive wars, and then you
0: start over again. It's not a very chipper thought. But I mean, here in the presidential campaign, there are a bunch of Democratic candidates who want to tax the wealthy. And Bernie Sanders says there should be no billionaires. We're going to tax their extreme wealth and invest in working people. And he's, you know, he's got a plan to reduce the inequality in the U.S. that has hit its highest level since the Census Bureau started tracking it five decades ago. Well, I would just say as a preface to that, we'll come to the
2: Likelihood that this is going to succeed in a moment, but let me just say, even more shocking—and this was actually one of the programs we did— even more shocking is that um, this is probably the greatest inequality that has ever existed in human history.
0: That you compared we, it to the Roman Empire in New York. That's your book. right.
2: That compared it to would, the Roman. Yeah.
0: we would have thought nah, maybe the Roman Empire.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, there has never been a time. Take the United States as just an example when three individuals have as much concentrated wealth as the entire bottom half of the population. That is unprecedented. You know, one could argue it's high time to have a major political figure who says um, not just the concentration of wealth because that's one part of it, but also the concentration of power that goes with the concentration of wealth. Those things are so skewed at this moment that if we don't really do something about it, our democracy and our society is imperiled. Um, And so – Will we have a wealth tax? Will we return to a very progressive um, scale of taxation in the United States that will place burdens on those most able to pay with the intent of opening up opportunities for those least able to pay? That's one of the biggest questions that stands out there for us uh, politically.
0: I'm talking with Jeffrey Winters, professor of political science at Northwestern University. We've been talking with Jeffrey for all 25 years of worldview. All right. So, I mean, what do you think? I mean, not, if you're Walter Scheidel in The Great Leveler, no way is Bernie Sanders going to come along and uh, do a little tax shuffle and take the money from the wealthy people. I would say the key is going
2: to be mobilization. So think of wealth power as this Incredible power resource on a massive scale in very few hands. Meanwhile, what are the power resources that ordinary citizens have? Their power is in their ability to mobilize, align, network, focus. And push through policy changes. And the last leveling moment we had, and it's extreme to call it leveling, but it was a moment in U.S. history when people at the bottom made real progress, was during the 20th century following the Great Depression – Um, Which follows Scheidel's (laughs) argument. Yes, that kind of rupture opened up the possibility for policy changes that would actually help people on the bottom. But it was coupled with the existence of unions, the fact that people organized through their unions and organized politically. So – The question is not just whether a Bernie Sanders is able to have an agenda like this, but whether he's able to fire up people and organize them and get them to participate in their own interest. That's not easy. You'd think it'd be easy to get people to struggle in their own interest. Um, One of the first challenges of that, one of the things leaders do is help clarify what's at stake, what your interests are, because there's a lot of other folks squirting ink into the water and making things not clear. Um, And so what's so exciting about a moment like this from having candidates like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren coming forward is that we have interlocutors, we have people speaking at the national level about these kinds of issues. And that hasn't been the case um, for many, many, many decades in US politics. So step one, it's great to have those leaders. The follow-on step is, mobilize not just win a presidential candidacy but mobilize people because if you don't mobilize them the lesson of history is this wealth power up against a non-mobilized population has no chance
0: It does seem like Wealth Power, I mean, mobilizes pretty easily in our electoral (laughs) system. You know, billionaires buy themselves offices in this state and in this country very easily. That's right. And the amazing thing about
2: Wealth Power is this. If I've got a huge amount of resources, I use those resources to employ people to do my work. So I don't even have to show up if I'm an oligarch. I can golf. I can go ride around in my yacht. Um, I don't have to actually be there. The beauty of wealth power from an oligarch's point of view is I just set armies of people in motion. Uh, accountants, lobbyists, uh, think tanks. I fund you know, economics departments to churn out the kinds of economic theories that work for me as a business person. The difficult side for the people being mobilized is it. Takes away from everything else you do. You have to actually personally sacrifice. That's not easy. That's why mobilizations are so hard. Um, People have kids, families, work, they want to sleep, they want leisure time, um, they want to escape. All those things. And they know. want to work on campaign finance reform. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah among, the many, among the many things. So oligarchs have tremendous advantages with the very nature of their power. And
0: frankly, that's why they win most of the time. Jeffrey Winters, it's been great talking with you all these years. Coming up after the break, I'll talk with the two producers of Worldview, Julian Haida and Steve Bynum. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and it's the last Worldview program. And in recent weeks, we've been chatting with some of the producers, ex-producers of the program. And now we are going to talk with the final ex-producers of the program. Be- because they're the current producers of the program, <laughs> Julian Haida and Steve Bynum. Great to have you guys here, and Nari Safavi is here because it's Friday, and Nari's always here on Friday.
4: I have absolutely no idea what else to do with my life. He's a creature of habit.
5: <laughs> <laughs> so, Nari, at the uh, beginning of every segment, you always tell us where we're going. Where are we going now?
4: Uh, where are we going? We're going towards uh, what the Persian poet Hafez says: "The land of not to sorrow," mm. because it could be the blessed beginning of many other things. And it's, it's an interesting moment. It's a very meaningful moment for me, at least. I don't know if I could say, speak for all of us. Uh, but, you know, as uh, Hoffa says, uh, the lost Joseph shall return to Canaan. Do not sorrow. And, uh, and this, uh, this desolate land of, uh, of drought shall someday become a garden. Do not sorrow. Wow. (laughs) I never
5: could memorize poetry, you know.
4: (laughs) And I'm trying to instantaneously translate them, too. Uh, So as it comes to mind... But uh, yes, uh, I, it has been a blessing for me to be a part of this team and to be asked by people like Jerome McDonald and Idie Rubinowitz initially to be to be a part of it, uh, uh, you know to be involved with this project and uh, and thanks to you Steve and Julian and people like Alexandra Solomon uh, it's been an amazing ride for me over here, and I'm grateful to all of you. Thank, you. thank you. Jerome.
0: Thank you, Nari. Um, Steve, you are the longest tenured producer by far on this program. Mm. You know, Jerome— What I, happened? I, how did we start? You, how did what we start? Well, well what
5: the first of all, years ago, you said something um, when one of our interns was leaving, or maybe one of our producers. You said, um, uh, people leave worldview because they actually have ambition. So <laughs> it speaks a, a great deal about me that uh, have I, I'm still here with you. No, you are a bold visionary, Steve. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, you know, here's the thing, though. Um, being on this show, and I've said it to you, and I've said it to others, and I know that you don't like to get emotional, so I'll do it for you. Um, I've always been a traveler in my mind and in my spirit. You know, I was born on the south side of Chicago and um, I was always a strange person compared to the others, you know, and I wanted to build models of um, cities. I was doing City before there was a Sim City, And then I would say, OK, I'm going to get on this airport and I draw the airport on the sheet of paper and then I'd fly here and fly there. And so I was always a wanderer. And so when I came to WBEZ 20 years ago, And I was an engineer for three years. I sat at the board and every day I got to travel. I got to explore. Um, I was able to leave this place and transform. And so you gave me that opportunity. So so worldview was the only thing I could see myself doing because um, you helped to satisfy that wanderlust. So thank you.
0: You're welcome. Julian Haida. Um, You were a guest on Worldview as a, what, 16-year-old?
6: I was 18, Jerome. (laughs) I was 18 when I was a guest. Um, Yeah, I think gratitude is the only word uh, that I could use, especially because at the time, when I was 18, I was surrounded by people such as yourself and like Steve – and Alexandra, uh, and, yeah. and, and and Alexandra, and all the people who've 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 uh, seen me and uh, seen me kind of for, for, for as being um, uh, having some some sort of potential, and I never saw that. And 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 at the time, someone, uh, a, a dear friend of 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 mine, uh, Father Myron Panchuk, and I were working on a film on Chernobyl. And who's this eighteen-year-old making a feature-length film about Chernobyl? And and at some point in in the production process. Um he said why are we doing this? You know what like who's going to watch this movie? And I said you know what father one day we're going to be on NPR with this. And uh and <laughs> and believe it or not like I mean it was it, you know maybe we didn't make it to NPR but uh, Steve you Jerome you you said there's something about this scrappy team of documentary filmmakers in Chicago. Um that is worth talking about because it's Chicago and the world coming together, um, and we 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 felt so validated because we felt that the stories of the people we were talking about, the people who the film was about, people who lived in Chernobyl uh, as squatters illegally, um, that, that that someone cared. And Jerome, I mean, you are like someone who cares I mean it's it's you are um, you have the biggest heart of anybody I've ever met
0: no
5: you're the most authentic human being I've ever known Um, this is getting ugly you're (laughs) incapable no you're incapable of even telling a white lie Um, you you live and bask in absolute truth at all times and sometimes it's a detriment to you um, it is a difficult thing. Oh, no, what you, I bask in truth at all times? Absolute, come truth. on! No, you do because um, and your authenticity inspires and it feeds and it nurtures um, and it it glorifies and it reflects light um, <laughs> uh, upon people. I thought you thought I was grumpy. Well, you are a curmudgeon. That's beside the point. Um,
4: I can think of a Persian poem when not all virtues are necessarily virtues. <laughs> you know, I think you're a bit of a,
5: of a, of a, a zealot, a green zealot. You know, yeah. you and I have our arguments about, you know, when I have a, some yeah. plastic water bottle or if I'm thinking about taking a plane flight because I don't yeah. want to walk to Vancouver. Yeah. But uh, You are
6: my conscience, Jerome. Damn.
5: <laughs> so, but you know, it is not an easy thing to authentically champion the marginalized because it is neither popular or profitable to do so. You can't market it or monetize it when you authentically represent those who have no voice, but you've done that. And actually, um, it's a courageous thing to do. And it comes at a cost. And I think about the episode we did um, around the um, birthday of Martin Luther King and he spoke about this and he talked about what it takes to actually stand for justice and the marginalized and what you have to be willing to put on the line to make it happen
7: now it isn't easy to stand up for truth and for justice sometimes it means being frustrated when you tell the truth and take a stand. Sometimes it means losing a job. It means being abused and scorned. It may mean having a seven, eight-year-old child asking your daddy, why do you have to go to jail so much? And I've long since learned that be a follower of Jesus Christ means taking up the cross. My Bible tells me that Good Friday comes before Easter. Before the crown we wear, there is the cross that we must bear. Let us bear it. Bear it for truth. Bear it for justice. And bear it for peace.
5: Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King. And so... Um, when I come to work every day, especially since we aired that episode, I think about you, uh, I think about in our times over the last 18 years we've been together. I started on the show right after 9-11, um, and that was the time for truth telling when people weren't ready to do that. Uh, journalists like, uh, Phil Donahue lost his job at MSNBC because he actually spoke out against the war, um journalists were going on the air, basically ridiculing people who were skeptical about that war. And you were one of the few people at the time who did the first guessing and had people on to talk about, here's how it can go wrong. And you paid a price for that. Uh, 15 years ago, you decided we will not have climate deniers on the show. Because then, and even to a certain extent now, balance is, well, the science says this. And then you get someone else on that says, well, the science, I'm skeptical, I don't know. And then that's balance. But you said, no, no climate deniers. And we were accused of being advocates. Uh, But no one's saying that now. CNN has a climate correspondent, for goodness sake. The Field Museum was with us when we were broadcasting from um, Federal Plaza at the youth climate strike. And so... It's not only that. You were talking about universal basic income and healthcare care is a right. And again, you were a lefty, hippie, zealot, whatever. And so now you talk about these issues of inequality and equity, and it's not so strange anymore. But it took people like you in a show like this to take the hits first so that people now can speak comfortably and we can have real dialogue.
0: Yeah, I think there's um – uh a kind of self censorship that a lot of people have in their heads just all the time. And Eve um I didn't think I was gonna pay any price. I didn't you know, I I worked here. I thought yeah. I there's people out there who I talk to all the time who do pay a price. Right. Um I'd have thought I was not gonna pay a price. And you know, I I mean, you know. What, a few calls, a few something? I didn't think that was Well, much. again, it, it doesn't make you popular. And, um, but the
5: thing is that I've never been more enthusiastic and more optimistic about the future. And it's because of these young people. It's because of people like Greta Thunberg. It's because of the Black Lives Matter movement. Julian Haida is a nice
0: young it's person. It's because I'm of Julian Haida,
5: who, you know, whenever I even think about self-censoring, he reminds me of what's at stake. Um, I call him old man for a number of reasons. And so in the last couple of years, when we've had these climate strikers on and they just get on the mic and they say, you know, I should be at school you know, I should be doing these other things. I shouldn't have to go out and march for the climate. But this is the world that you adults have left us, in, and we're not hearing it anymore. A million people go to Washington, D.C. to deal with gun violence because we're not dealing with it. And so they inspire me, and how can I cower when they're putting it on the line? And um, that's, it's a kind of shame that I'm, I'm glad for because it's humbling, and, um,
0: and it puts me in the mind to serve, which we all must do. I'm talking with Steve Bynum and Julian Haida, the worldview producers that have been putting it on the air, Steve, since uh, shortly after 2001 and uh, Julian Haida for the last several years. Uh, Julian, do, do you have any fond memories of the show? What do you think? Uh, how, how did you enjoy things? What's, uh, what's going on?
6: This is the first time, I think, because you've interviewed me yeah. uh, before I was a, one of your producers and now as a producer. Um and this is the first time I don't have like anything prepared. I am like completely like out of words. <laughs> and I mean, you know I I'm I'm a chatty person. You yes, you, you, you you stroll up, uh, you know, you sit next to me and 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 we, and we chat a lot. Actually, I chat at you mostly. Um I I can't there's just too many to count. Like Incredible opportunities I mean you've talked to so many worldview producers over the last few months that have said this has been the best time of their lives and um i i mean this the the opportunities of 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 not only just meeting people because you could do that anywhere if you're committed enough but uh, like opening up in a way that is raw and unassuming genuine mm-hmm. and I mean I think a couple of years ago Steve you and I were talking and we're like I mean we, 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 we you, you were the first to bring to me when I started here that it's that, like, doing this kind of work of, of championing the marginalized not because it's some sort of partisan position but because journalism is supposed to speak truth to power mm-hmm. and you said it's, it's like a ministry um, and to serve others is, is everything. Um, so I can't quite say that there's like a moment. Um, but this, this all kind of comes together because I know, even though sometimes I'm sure you feel this way too, sometimes it feels like we're shouting into a void with these microphones on. Like we have, we have, uh, posted if you visit wbez.org slash worldview, um, like a supercut of all the times – or not some of the times, many of the times between 2001 and 2005 where you had people on who from all kind of ideological standpoints said, you know, let's, let's, let's consider this war thing. Let's consider what, what war means um, and, and that, that takes generosity and humility – to do that. And all of those times, coincidentally, when you front load generosity and humility, um, you end up finding truth. Um, there's a lot of talk about, you know, how can journalism be more equitable? How can uh, we serve marginalized communities um, and, and have diversity of voice? Sometimes that's done through um, – making sure that you have a diversity of voice before even finding those voices. But the worldview editorial process is such that when you find an issue, whether it be the environmental issue, you will find people that that affects the most and you will let them speak their truth. And, and in so doing, you will, you will meet all kinds of people. You will find genuine diversity in a way that um, –
5: we were doing it
6: without yeah. even trying, <laughs> without even I mean, thinking about
5: it, and really, and we really were. And so, you know, here, you, if if you think about diversity in a very superficial manner, then you, you know you can just look at color. But you know, you're this white guy, but um, you're blacker than I am on a lot of issues, and you're willing to push the envelope in ways that even I wasn't willing to push it. And so, you know, empathy and service. Um, knows no color and knows no boundary. And so it's really, those are the questions that answer themselves when you serve.
0: Uh, We're doing the last worldview program. I'm Jerome McDonald talking with Steve Bynum and Julian Haida here. And Nari Safavi is with us as well. And I wanted to uh, acknowledge our missing partner, Milos.
4: Um, Absolutely. Milos Stelic is, uh, you know, his, uh, you know, the empty chair over here is really uh, just is memorializes him and i think there will be a memorial for him in about a week or so uh and yeah, it's at the arts up, club yep. in the arts club yeah but uh but i do f- miss my friday uh, green room chats with Milo quite a bit and i also wanted to mention uh that uh, we may be under uh, appreciating the social impact that you guys have had uh, on worldview. uh Just from the limited appearances that I had had over here, a few years ago I was invited to a conference in Washington, D.C. to give a a small talk, and then all of a sudden a gentleman comes up to me and says that – uh, I really like the analysis that you guys do in Chicago on Iran. And I'm like, well, who are you? And it turns out that he was a member of the Knesset of Israel. <laughs> and he thought that to get really good analysis of Middle East politics, especially on Iran, he really had to shift the worldview and not necessarily listen to the American perspectives coming out of the New York and Washington, D.C. area. So uh, I don't want to identify who it was in the member of the Knesset, but the, we are appreciated in very influential circles uh, beyond what we may have recognized. And that's really a debt of gratitude and the global impact that uh, this show may have had, uh, not just changing the conversation here locally in Chicago.
0: Well, that's a, that's some very thoughtful stuff, Nari. Thank you for saying that. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> uh, you know um, – did you guys have some fun? Did you guys? I mean, we're kind of we're kind of talking about the important stuff, but I, I think we had some fun.
5: Well, you remember when uh, years ago we did the pledge drive, and uh, if people would pledge a leadership circle or dollar a day based on their amount, I would eat an empanada, and we cook it. We cooked it live on the air. Our intern did, and so I ate about thirty. <laughs> empanadas because one of the things that you are the, we nailed more leadership circle members when you pitched during the pledge drive than anyone by far. And I ended up having some gastrointestinal problems as a result, but it was a hit I was willing to take.
0: Um, When Andrea did the uh, sit-ups during the pledge drive, I thought we, uh, didn't we eat, um, eat, you ate empanadas. I thought somebody ate a goldfish. Wasn't somebody, Andrea broke a board for for the Pledge Drive. That was a hoot. She tried to break a board, but it was plywood. You can't break plywood.
6: Are goldfish vegetarian friendly?
0: (laughs) Goldfish are pescatarian friendly. Well, before we run out of time, one thing that I did want to say is
5: number one, I'm, I'm very happy that you will be doing this environmental reporting because it's the existential crisis of the human race and it's about time people paid attention to it. And I'm glad that you're doing that. But the thing that I need to say to you most importantly is my beautiful wife is coming into the studio and sitting down. Um, You and I have a covenant. And I think about the relationship between David and Jonathan, where. Jonathan loved David as his own soul, and that's how I love you. And I am 40 pounds lighter because of you. I rarely i don 't eat meat that much because of you. I think about with it I think with intentionality about how I plant my garden, how I live my life, the clothes I wear, the car I drive um, all because of you, so um, beyond friends we 're brothers, and you and I. We've been so long together because we've seen our producers married off together. We've raised our yes, kids together. Six death.
0: marriages, six marriages. We've
5: raised our kids together. We've buried our dead together, you and I. And that doesn't leave. And this mission that we do doesn't change or stop because this show is ending, because it's, it's inherent. In who It's about who we are. It's, it's at the, the heart, the, the base of our souls. So,
0: we're. Thank you, Steve. Yep. Worldview producer Steve Bynum, Worldview producer Julian Haida, and Nari Safavi, thank you very much uh, for everything over the years. We'll be back with some final thoughts after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. For the past 34 years, listeners to this station have invested in a global news program. First, Midday was Sandra Gare, which I produced, and then for the last 25 years, Worldview. I think the payoff's been pretty good. One of the benefits is we got to know ourselves better. During whatever crisis arose, Worldview's best resource was this community— The Lithuanian community was there to talk with us when the Baltics rose up against the Soviet Union. The same with our Central American community, the former Yugoslavia, our new Tibetan community. There were Nigerian Americans talking with us during the democracy movement against Sani Abacha. The Filipino community, the amazing Ethiopian community, the Arab Spring countries, Korean Americans, and so many others. We got to know each other. We got to know who we are. And we got to know the world. Another payoff for all of us is how we were able to help each other. The global activism segment helped with refugees, education, health care, orphans. There are babies that have incubators in Côte d'Ivoire, girls going to school in Senegal. When we held the first global activism expo, we didn't know if anyone would show up. But 900 people were lined up outside the gym. Several thousand came to each of the events at the UIC Forum. As one of our guests said earlier this week, one of the keys to leading a fulfilling life is answering the question, how can I help? We answered that question together. It was soul-fulfilling for everyone concerned. I'll always look back on this as our greatest accomplishment. Over the past few months, I've been deeply touched and humbled by the outpouring of support from listeners. It's been really powerful. I appreciate the sincerity and the public demonstration of how to work together for a common good. I feel ya. I got so many heartfelt letters, like this one from Bob Ores, who wrote, I discovered NPR and WBEZ as a 16-year-old. Now 61, living in Golden, Colorado, I'm streaming your programming nearly 12 hours a day. Worldview's been one of my favorite programs that WBEZ produced. I received a continuing education in world culture, affairs, music, personalities, resource conservation, the list goes on. Some of the stories were harbingers of issues that became mainstream only years later. Some notable memories include Isabel Allende, the Cuica, Earth Day quizzes, ticks affecting moose on Isle Royal, the Marmot researcher, and the Great Lakes water wars. Interesting, entertaining, significant. The level of radio education that I received is as important to me as the jazz education I received from Dick Buckley. And that is a smoking hot compliment in my book. I love hearing from people like Bob who've been with us for the long haul, who talk about Dick Buckley, who remember Sandra Gere's programs with the Soviet Union. That's great stuff. Another listener, Anna Stigler, writes, I'd heap all kinds of compliments, but the significant piece for me is that I trust you. You make the people you interview trustworthy, breadth and depth of knowledge coupled with kindness and a genuine interest in making sure your audience gains understanding of the complexities of the lives of others and the lives we live without fully understanding our connectedness. You made your audience wiser. Thank you for the trust, Anna. That's huge. We need more of it. I've been listening to Worldview for many years. I can't quantify how much you and your program have enriched my life. I'm so grateful for the information and education you bring every day. Frankly, I'm stunned at how much I don't know. When I listen, I feel like I'm getting nourished or drinking water. I soak it all in. I'm grateful that I can become more aware of and then contemplate meaningful, important issues and explore them further. More often than not, you and your team bring things to my attention for the first time, things I haven't even considered. To my ear, the majority of your stories come out of the blue, stories I don't even hear in other NPR programs. Yes, you cover widely reported stories, and that's appropriate and good. But even with more well-known stories, you look at them with more interesting perspectives. Your choice of subject matter demonstrates your sensitivity and compassionate mindset with equity and justice as the guiding light. These listeners touched on a lot of core things, empathy, justice, trust. Worldview focused on what's important. We lived our values. We opened our minds and our hearts. And we operated on a basis of goodwill. I'm glad that resonated. I've got a lot to be grateful for. I mean, who gets letters that good on their last day on the job? It's over-the-top nice. Back on my first day here in 1983, I walked into the founder of modern-day WBEZ's office, Carol Nolan. I was a freshly-minted college graduate with a resume that had only a little whiteout on it. And she found something for me to do, and I've never had another resume. I've been able to get up every day and think I had a chance to make a difference. That's like winning the lottery. Carol Nolan is just the beginning of the people I'm grateful to. Ken Davis and Linda Paul made those early years so fun. Their compass for good radio was so true. I slid into working with Sandra Gears sideways, really. We were a strange duo. She was impetuous. I'm cautious. But we really clicked, and Sandra made me a believer that peace is something a radio program could work for. Tori Malatia asked me to do this program. He was generous patient and wise i hold him most responsible for me having had the greatest experience ever in public radio i'm extremely grateful for my wife janet she is also like winning the lottery Uh, all couples raising kids have to make crazy adjustments but i had 25 years of homework every night she made everything work she never stops becoming more beautiful she knows i love her I'd also like to profess my love for all the producers of the program. These people didn't just make me better on the radio, they made me a better human being. Gretchen Helfrich, Edie Rabinowitz, Andrea Wenzel, Thomas Galkin, Dave McGuire, Breeze Richardson, Nissa Ree, Jonah Meadows, Alexandra Solomon, Becky Vlamis, Joe Lindstroth, Eiley Heiken and Weiss, and the current crew, Julian Haida and Ashish Valentine. I am extremely grateful for the excessively long and dedicated tenure and bold vision of Steve Bynum. Really, that's not too many producers for 25 years. You have made a thrifty little investment here at Public Radio. We are living in crazy times. There are obviously serious problems. The thing that gives me hope is you. You've shown me what we hold in our hearts. We know a better world is possible. It's going to take some doing, but we're getting there. And we're going to get there to that better world our hearts know is possible. I'm going to do some environmental reporting for the station now. It's an important topic I'd like to raise the profile of around here. Thanks for listening, everybody. Peace and love. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ